John chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You know what we need right now in life? We need a joyful reality. Not a joyful wish. Uh, not something that we're kind of hoping is going to happen. And we don't need a sad reality. We have enough sad realities. We need a joyful reality. We need joy because we're in a cold war culturally. And all the tectonic plates underneath us are shifting and people are having a hard time finding their bearings and people are having a hard time finding their joy. The battle cry has been basically this. If we could only go back to normal, I guess that's 2018 when Clemson were the champions, you know, <laughs> before COVID. But that puts your hope in normal. That doesn't put your hope in Jesus. That puts your hope in normal. That's not something to hope in. You know, that's what the, all the way through, the Israelites always hope for that too. Could you restore our forces like streams in the Negev? Can we just go back to these parish? And Jesus is like, no, I'm taking you somewhere new. You know what we need? We don't need restored to normal. We need the reality, a joyful reality. We need smelling salts of the resurrection. We need to wake up to see what God might be doing in this time and how we, as Christians, living through these years on the east side of Greenville can have a joyful reality, and that's going to come with the resurrection. There's three points, a joyful reality because he knows our concerns. He knows your concerns. Here Mary is, weeping outside the tomb. And as it says in verse 11, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Think of a tomb like a cave. And you just imagine the scene with me, if you would. Here she is weeping, and she takes her tears, and she looks into the cave, and she sees two angels. Now, nobody thinks that she thought they were angels, uh, we know that angels sometimes could represent as people. And so the normal reaction, if you think they are angels, is to be fearful. That's how it always happens through Scripture. She doesn't seem to think anything like that. So she probably just receives them as two people uh, sitting there on the tomb. And she wipes her tears. Maybe she, you know, does a second take winter who these two individuals are in white. Don't think she recognized them at all. I often wondered at this moment, like what the angels were thinking. Like Mary came into the room and I wonder if the angels thought, well, this would be fun. 
do you want to tell her or should I? I don't know. Maybe we could play a prank. You know, I mean, I just wonder, like, do you want to show her your wings? I mean, I always wonder, like, what was going on in their minds at this moment when Mary comes in? Or maybe they were thinking, Jesus rose for that one? Jesus died for her? And for Peter? Like, I just wonder what they were thinking. Now, on a side note, I was going to spend more time doing this, but we're don't have the time this morning. But as a side note, if you're suspicious about Christianity and you say, angels, how can we believe in angels? How can we believe in a resurrection? Let me pause and just say this. At some point when you read the scriptures, you're going to have to decide, are you a materialist or not? In other words, do you think that this world, that all, that all that this world is, is what we can see, feel, taste, touch, and empiricist, and that's all that there is? Or are you going to say, no, there's something more than this world. You're going to have to decide that first. And then I would say, if there is something more than this world, if you would admit that much, and if you would admit that there's a God, then I would suggest to you, as I do almost every Easter, if there is a God, doesn't he, by definition, have to be able to do something that you can't do, like a resurrection, like angels, that's a side note. Let's come back to the text. And so they say, woman, why are you weeping? This is a, it's a mild rebuke. But it is a rebuke. It's a mild one. Almost like when your kids get the ice cream cone and immediately somebody bumps their hand and the th- whole thing falls off and the person behind the counter sees it and they immediately hand you another cone. But in the middle of those two or three seconds, the, the child starts to cry. You already know the problem is solved. It wasn't their fault. The problem is solved. And you say, why are you crying? You know, here's another cone. The angels are like, why are you weeping at all? And here she says, well, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where that they've laid him. Now, that's not an abnormal statement. Grave robbing in this day and age was very common. Uh, So this was not an uncommon thing. Like somebody took him, somebody's harvesting him. Let's try to figure out where he is because I want to protect him and I want to honor him. And then here's the beautiful thing. Look at this. Between verse 13 and between verse 14, uh, they've asked her these questions. She's responded and then they're silenced. Uh, I would love to write a book called, with the title, The Angels Were Silent. I have no idea what would be in it. I don't know anything past the copyright page. That's all I have so far. But the, but the title is phenomenal. Because all of a sudden they're having this interactions and then they just went silent. Because behind Mary, Jesus enters. You can imagine the angels looking at each other going, well, this is going to be fun. Let's see what happens next. But they knew one thing, which was their time to talk was over. And, I, you know, Mary turned around. I think probably the visual clue, like maybe one of them went, you should turn around. Or, you know, or they just looked. I don't know what happened. But Mary turned around, if you see in verse 14, and she sees Jesus standing there. And she didn't know it was Jesus And then as it picks up, Jesus said to her, he picks up the conversation the same way. Woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds on the question, what are you seeking? In other words, what kind of of Messiah were you waiting for? Somebody who would take over the world? Somebody who would be a king? Somebody who would take down the Romans? What were you waiting for? Who were you waiting to find? She wasn't expecting a gardener, but that's how she received him. 
So look at what it says in the text. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. What a Jesus-like entrance. He walks into the tomb of his victory, the resurrection, to see Mary, not with pomp and circumstance, not with robes, not with all of these things behind them, not with an army, but dressed like a gardener coming silently into her life, much like he does in ours. Just quietly and silently coming into our lives and our hearts and saying, I'm here to take care. I'm here to prune what I need to prune. I'm here to do what I need to do. It should be no surprise to us. After all, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when they were in the garden and they've fallen and the sin has entered the world, they said, look, he's going to, Strike your heel, evil is, Satan is, and you're going to crush his head. Even in the garden back then, God was saying, where are you? God was approaching. God was incarnate. God was accommodating. God was coming to us on a level that we could see him and even a level that we could sometimes miss him. And the joyful reality of this text is he knows our concerns. Look at what he says. Who are you seeking? What are your concerns? Why are you weeping? That's a joyful reality of life, that he knows your concerns. It says in Psalm 56, he will keep track of all of your sorrows and all of your tears will be bottled up. And it says in Revelation chapter 5 that he'll wipe away, in 21, that he'll wipe away every tear from your eye. You know what that means? Every grief, every pain, every loss, every doubt that you have in life right now, Jesus is keeping track of so he doesn't lose any opportunity to redeem one of them by wiping them away in the new heavens, in the new earth. He knows your concerns. And don't assume that he doesn't care. He cares about your prodigal kid that you weep over. He cares about the loss that you've experienced that you weep over. He cares about your grief that you weep over. He cares about your loss of innocence that you weep over. He cares about all of those things more than you do. Because he's that kind of God, because he made you and you're his. He cares for you more than you care for you. Don't assume for a second he doesn't care. God cares for you deeply. He knows your concerns. He cries himself over the grave of Lazarus. He knows what you're dealing with and he cares for you. However, you could maybe assume that God has already solved the problem that we're weeping over interestingly in this text, he's already solved the problem that Mary is worried about. He's standing right there in front of her. And so we have to choose between faith or fatalism. Are we just going to assume things are going to go a certain way and God's not involved? Or are we going to believe again this morning in the resurrection and have by faith the reality in our lives, a joyful reality that God might be solving the problems that you indeed are concerned about? That God is somehow taking all of those things together and he's working them out according to his will. And if you feel out of control with your kids, if you feel out of control in your marriage, if you feel out of control with your businesses or your finances or your relationships, then about the only thing you can do is worship the one who is in control. Because sometimes you're just out of control. 
And no matter what you do, you can't get back in control. It's out of your control. But you can worship the one who is in control. Look, this week, I'm not going to go into it. I don't have time. Thought about it, but I don't have time. This week, I felt out of control, just emotionally, which I know I fly a little too close to the sun sometimes. Uh, but also just in life, I felt, I felt so out of control. And um, in the last night when I was preparing this sermon, polishing, I had prepared before, but I was polishing, <laughs> not much, but a little bit. I was polishing the sermon, and I was watching a, a 9-11 documentary, which is a bad idea while I'm working on a sermon. But I was watching that documentary at the same time, and a Psalm 30 came to mind. I felt out of control. Psalm 30, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the earth, will dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You've turned from me my mourning into dancing. You've loosened my sackcloth. You've clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O my God, I give thanks to you forever. Um, Although I feel, here's the takeaway, although I feel completely out of control right now, God knows my concern about these things, and I'm at least not turned into dust right now. I'm at least able to worship. I'm at least able to praise. I'm at least able to honor the one who is in control and who is sovereign. Number two, here's a joyful second reality. He knows your name. Look at what it says in the text. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Now let's talk about that name just briefly for a second. Mary. It's confusing because there's many Marys in the Bible. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, There's Mary, the wife of Clopas, who is also related to Jesus. There's Mary, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, There's Mary of Bethany, who was a sister to Martha and the brother to Lazarus. Uh, There's Mary Salome, sometimes called Salome in the Bible. There's a lot of Marys, and then there's Mary Magdalene. And so this is Mary Magdalene. Now, what can we say about Mary Magdalene? She was not married to Jesus. That doesn't come from the Bible. That comes from the Da Vinci Code. (laughs) You might as well believe in Jumanji that you can play a Nintendo game and go back in time as Kevin Hart. That you, that's, you, equally, you could go either way, the Da Vinci Code or Jumanji, either way. Either way, it's not biblical, okay? So let's just start there. She wasn't a harlot. She wasn't a prostitute. That's a common belief as well. Although we get that a little bit more legitimately because Pope Gregory in 591 said there's these three people. This girl in Luke 7 is the same as Mary in Luke 8. And then this other girl who was unmentioned, that's all the same person. And so the church believed that for years. And uh, it was never true. It was never right. Finally, in 1969, the Catholic Church came back and said, yeah, we were wrong. We've known it for a long time. We're just, this is the first time we're able to admit it. So she wasn't the sinful woman. From what we know, she was independent. She was unmarried. She was most likely wealthy. She was most likely of high social status. She also had, and this is only mentioned casually, interestingly, in Luke chapter 8, verse 3, she also had seven demons in her at one point that were extracted from her. That's not so abnormal. Demons typically travel in packs, so don't get, you know, the seven don't get caught up with that. 
But that was just passed casually in Luke chapter 8, that that work had been done in her life. And now here she is, the central figure to the resurrection. Why would Jesus, why would he allow, if you're trying to prove the divinity of Christ, why would you use a woman? But through all the four gospels, she is the central figure in the resurrection. Through all the four gospels, why would you use a woman? When there were bad character witnesses in this day, that would be like if I was caught for a crime and my chief character witness was a gangster who was a meth addict. It just wouldn't work that well. It wouldn't hold up in court. Well, here they use a woman who weren't even used in the court system to say, this is the chief person through all the four. Why would you use a woman? Here's why. Because it was historically true. She was just the one that was there. They're just reporting the reality of who historically was there. George Ladd says it this way. He says, the uniqueness of the scandal of the Christian religion rests on the mediation of revelation through historical events. Christianity is not just a code for living or a philosophy of religion. It's rooted in the real events of history. To some people, this is scandalous because it means that the truth of Christianity is inexplicably bound up with the truth of certain historical facts. And if those facts should be disproved, Christianity would be false. This, however, is what makes Christianity unique, because unlike any world religions, modern man has a means of actually verifying Christians' truth with historical evidence. Well, let me apply it. It's a joyful reality that he knows your name. Look again at verse 16. She, he says to her, Mary. It's intensely personal. Jesus didn't die for a group. He died for you. Let me put it this way. You know you go to those fundraising events and somebody says, I bought the table. All, all of us have been there. It happens every spring in Greenville, South Carolina for years. I bought the table. I can't find a seat. Will you come sit at my table? They're just trying to fill the table. Jesus didn't buy a table, and now he's trying to fill it with whoever he can find who will come and tithe and give some money. That's not what he He died for you. Personally, he died for you. This is a personal thing for him. He didn't just die for a number that needs to be fulfilled. He didn't die just for a, a nebulous group. He died for you. This is personal to him. And I'm wondering, is he personal to you? Because she responded in her native tongue, in Aramaic, Rabbani. In other words, my teacher. As it was quoted before from Wesley in that prayer, my people hear my voice, John 10. And she could hear the voice of Jesus when he called her name personally. God's relationship with you is personal. The question is, is your relationship with him personal. And if it is, you'll be willing to follow him. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, and uh, there's another trip coming this next summer, Lord willing. Uh, Mark is going on it. Bob Bayless is in charge of it. You should go. And you should go on Saturday night to the Western Wailing Wall around 11 o'clock. If you are a people watcher, it is the best place to watch people in the history of the world. 
And you'll see these rabbinis, you'll see these rabbis come into the Western Wailing Wall and around these old rabbis with this white hair, there's be 20 or 30 of them down by the Western Wailing Wall. All of these young students would be just following them. I'm just right behind them, just waiting for anything that will drip, any command that they give them. And you can just watch the way that they follow them. And that's the context that Mary's in. You're my teacher, you're my rabbi. I will follow you wherever you tell me to go. It's this beautiful picture of obeying God, trusting him, and then leaving the rest to him. Hey, because here's where we are as Americans. We love to know the end before we even start. What's the end game to this, Jesus? What's the end play? We're all suspicious that he has an agenda. And what Jesus wants is for you just to follow him, for you to see where he's leading you today. Look, let me put it in other terms. No offensive lineman in the NFL or in college would say, uh, what's the play? And I need to know the next 10 plays and what's the offense doing before I block. Nobody would do that. You call the play, you, you do the block and you worry about the next play when the next play is called. No ballerina, this is something I know a little bit about. And by a little bit, I mean a little bit. But no ballerina is going to be on the stage at the Nutcracker doing all their pirouettes saying, I wonder if we're going to do Swan Lake or Giselle in the spring. Nobody does that. You focus on what you need to focus on at that moment. You trust God with what he is leading you to at that moment. And you let the rest fall to him. And that's what she means when she says, Rabbi. And then lastly, it's a joyful reality. First of all, it's a joyful reality he knows your concern. It's a joyful reality he knows your name. It's a joyful reality that he knows your family. Look at what he says. Do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So she apparently grabs on to him. Nothing sexual in nature there. But he says, don't cling to me yet. Why would he say that? Well, D.A. Carson summarizes it this way. He says, This would be a summary of it. I'm not yet in the ascended state. You don't have to hang on to me as if I was about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy and for sharing the news, not for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded private dream come true. Stop clinging to me, but go tell my disciples I'm in the process of sending to my father and to your father. He was ascending. In other words, he was going to do the work. I am ascending to my Father. I have died. I've been resurrected. And now I am ascending to my Father in heaven. I'm going to do all of the work necessary to intercede for you. So let's play a game. Let's play a game I like to call uh, Spot the Heresy. Super fun. You don't even have to buy it. Play it on a Friday night. Get your family together. Get some hors d'oeuvres. Get some uh, drinks out, whatever you need. And all you need is a Bible, and then you need your phone. And what you're going to do is you're going to open Twitter, and you're just going to start scrolling. And we're going to play Spot the Heresy. A friend of mine tweeted this. I'm going to talk to him about it. Jesus died, like I really will. Jesus died broadly for all sinners, Okay, I mean, there's some nuance there. We can maybe get through that. You get a point if you can figure that one out. Here's five points for the next one. Christians are the ones 
who are willing to accept his forgiveness? Nope. Five points to anybody figure out why. <laughs> what happens there? That again makes you the one. Christians are the one who has figured it out. You're the ones who are willing. You're the ones who are, are able to say, yes, I have received that and I will take that. In. No, you are dead in your sins and your transgressions. That's the whole point of the resurrection. You can't willingly accept it. God has to change your heart. God has to do the work from the start. And so we got to get back to this reality that everything we need for life and godliness and all that we are and all that we could be all comes from the resurrection. And this beautiful picture where he says, I'm ascending so that you can have the Holy Spirit. And now I'm going to, and look at this phrase, because this is unique, my father and to your father. He doesn't say that other places. Other places in scripture will say, I'm going to my father or my father has told me this. Now he says, the deal's been sealed. I'm going to my father who's now your father. And I want you to imagine not your joy in that reality. Now you're in the family business. Now you're an heir, Romans chapter 8. And now you're connected with God through Christ eternally. And you're, now you're adopted. But I want you to imagine the way that Jesus might have been overjoyed by that. Because it's personal for him. Jesus looking at Mary and saying, I've accomplished the task. Now you and I are going to be together forever. And you're going to be, get to meet my father. And he's never going to leave you and forsake you. And we're going to be co-heirs together in eternity. That's who you are, Mary. And now you're in the family business. And what's the family business? Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. The family business is a go and give your life away. Look, you could say that you have a personal spirituality, that Christianity is your personal thing. That actually is not a category Christianity. Uh, to say I have this private religion or I have a personal spirituality, let that be for the New Agers, let that be for the Buddhists, let that be for the Hindus. That's not a category for Christians. For Christians, when you're in the family, you're in the family business. And what is the family business? That we go tell people the good news. That we go give our lives away. And why is your life so dull right now? Why do you feel so far from the Lord? Because you're not doing that. And because you're not involved with some of these life. You're not encouraging people. You're not seeking after people. You're not trying to share the news. You're not declaring to anybody, I've seen him. I belong to him. So let me close here. We're way past where I need to be. But let me close with this. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith in, is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we're testified about God that he raised Christ whom he had not raised if it's not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Everything hinges on the resurrection. But if Christ has been raised, then you can live the joyful reality of that. 
regardless of what the culture, regardless of what this world throws at you, the joyful reality, he knows your concerns. He knows what you weep over. He knows your name, and he knows your father, and he knows your family. As it says at the end of this chapter, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and by believing, you might have life. You might have life. My challenge to you, I mean, take away what you want to, but one thing that I would challenge you with is give your lives away for him. Give your life away for the good news. Give your lives away to disciple and care for and love others. Give your lives away that we would see more and more and more infant, teenage, adult baptisms. Give your lives away to that so that we would see more and more signs that the Holy Spirit is doing that we wouldn't be able to fill our own chronicles of Mitchell Road with if we could write them all down. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray as we prepare to go that you would capture for us any truths from your word, but maybe it's the, the fact that you do know our concerns and we should even share those with you today. Not assume you don't know, but assume that you're working. Maybe it's the personal nature that you're teaching us and leading us and we need to follow you. And maybe it's we need to share the news of what you've done. We thank you for the breadth and the depth of the gospel of Christ in your name. Amen.